Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we jump into sections 3, 4, and 5, which is early in church history, long before the church gets organized. And one of the things we're going to do this year as we study these sections is we're going to try and provide enough background to provide some understanding of what's going on and why is it significant. So we turn now to the loss of what we call the 116 pages, which was actually probably more than that, and Mike will get into that. So let's set the stage, Mike, for why does Martin Harris want this manuscript? What's he planning to do with it? What's the whole setting of Section 3, where Joseph Smith is going to be rebuked for giving the pages to Martin Harris? So that's a great question. One of the questions people ask all the time is like, why does he even have the manuscript? He pressured Joseph to give him for a short time so that he could reclaim his reputation. His issue was people back home in Palmyra thought that Martin had perhaps gone mad. We're going to put in the show notes a timeline of the 1828 time period. The Book of Mormon translation timeline is what we call it. Starting in December of 1827, Joseph and Emma, they leave Palmyra and they go to Harmony. And so in January and February of 1828, Joseph is translating and Emma is scribing. And during the high point of when farmers are supposed to really be productive in the spring, and even before the spring as they're preparing for planting, Martin spends several weeks away from home. In February and March, he goes all the way to New York City, which was a considerable distance that he goes, and he takes the characters of the manuscript to Professor Charles Anthon. Now, the whole idea is Martin is kind of looking for some secondary proof, some evidence that Joseph really does have. Remember, Martin Harris does not see the gold plates until he's one of the three witnesses and Moroni comes and presents them. So all of this time period, he doesn't see the plates and Joseph has handed him some copied characters and Martin just needs reassurance So his plan is to run to New York, show the characters to some professors, some Egyptologists, and say, are these legitimate ancient characters? And he gets that confirmation. Now, Charles Anthon has a totally different version of this than what you find in the Pearl of Great Price. Charles Anthon claims that this never happened. But the historical fact is that Martin Harris came home from that visit and mortgaged his farm to help Joseph Smith pay for this. Now, why would he have done that? If Charles Anthon's account is correct, then why would Martin Harris come home and mortgage his farm? That's the historical fact, that Martin Harris went looking for secular confirmation that these were ancient characters, that these are legit that they're not just chicken scratch, there's not someone just trying to make up a, a fraudulent claim that they have an ancient text, and he got it. And even though Charles Anthon and his family claim that this never happened, the reality is what followed next in Martin Harris's life is pretty clear that he got the confirmation that he was seeking. So he comes home absolutely convinced that this is legit, that Joseph needs help, and that he wants to participate which actually gets him in trouble with his wife, his family, and his friends back in Palmyra. Yeah, so he gets back in the spring from New York City, and he comes on April 12th. He starts scribing for the prophet Joseph. He's convinced he's going to mortgage his farm, which he does to help pay for the publication. And he scribes for Joseph from April 12th to June 14th. Now that's two months of time. That's critical farming time. He's gone. Yeah, not only is it critical farming time, his daughter gets married during this time period in Palmyra, and he doesn't come to the wedding. He's in Harmony, Pennsylvania with Joseph, who, you know, Emma's pregnant and wants to give birth near her parents. And so they're in Harmony, Pennsylvania, not in Palmyra, New York. So his daughter marries a a fellow by the name of Flanders Dyke. And on May 13th, five days after he fails to show up to the wedding, a deed for Martin's property for 80 acres of land appears in the Palmyra land records. The deed is made out to Martin's cousin and brother-in-law, Peter Harris, who is Lucy's brother. Now that 
may cause some problems for some of you. Yes, Lucy and Martin are cousins. And so that did happen back then. So Lucy's brother has 80 acres of Martin's land put in his name. Now, historically, what we do is we look at these things and we say, something's going on. Right after he doesn't show up to his daughter's wedding, a huge chunk of land is put in his wife's brother's name. And historians look at this and say, this is Lucy positioning herself. She's doing more than any words could do. She's essentially telling her husband, I'm preparing for separation. Now, you know this, if you miss your daughter's wedding, that's a problem. And you can feel the tension in Martin. What we're trying to do, Bryce and I are trying to illustrate the humanness of both Martin and Joseph and to set up the chess pieces so that you can see what were the precursors to section three. And And not only what was in Martin's heart, but what was in Joseph's heart. Because watching this happen, Joseph, I mean, Joseph considers Martin Harris a key piece of this. How in the world is he going to publish this book? Joseph has no money. And so he sees Martin Harris as a critical piece. And as Martin's world starts to fall apart, you can understand why Joseph has a desire to help out, even though the Lord is saying, don't do it. Yeah. I mean, Martin literally has to protect himself. His reputation's on the line. His wife, we can see this in the historical record, is positioning herself to separate. There's tension in Palmyra, and he knows it. And yet at the same time, you can see Martin, at least this is my view of history, I can see Martin on fire with the belief of the Book of Mormon. There's also some evidence that he thinks that the Book of Mormon is going to make quite a bit of money. And so he sees you know, possibly a monetary advantage to this. And so I can see him being torn. So from April 12th to June 14th, during those two months, Martin and Joseph produce quite a bit of text. This text is going to cover the period of Lehi leaving Jerusalem all the way to the reign of King Benjamin. And it's in the words of Mormon. So let's be clear, this is Mormon's abridgment of that time period. It's not the actual words of Nephi or Jacob like we find in the Book of Mormon. It's Mormon's abridgment of Lehi down to King Benjamin, which is a very large period of time. So let's address that. What do we know about its length? Joseph Smith refers to it as the Book of Lehi in the introduction of the first edition of the Book of Mormon. So when they finally print the Book of Mormon, he provides an explanation as to the loss of these pages, and Joseph calls it the Book of Lehi, which was Mormon's abridgment. So it must have been a considerable chunk of Scripture. If you think about all that was involved in you know Lehi leaving Jerusalem, and Nephi, and Jacob, and And that whole time period, this must have been a big chunk of Scripture. So why, Mike, why do we refer to it as the 116 pages if most historians think it was larger than 116 pages? That's a great question, Bryce. I think one of the reasons why we call it that is because that's the replacement text. The text that replaces this missing document, first and second books of Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Jerem, Omni, the small plates, were 116 pages. And so to keep things simple historically, I think Joseph calls it the 116 pages, but I want to just suggest that perhaps it was a little bit longer. For example, of the 920 years that Mormon's covering, 450 of it is this missing stuff. Now, also, if you look at the time period and the the rate at which Joseph's translating when he's working with Oliver, he's doing about seven, seven and a half pages a day in about the same time period. And so if you mathematically look at these two months, and if he's close to that seven pages... There's a lot more than 116 pages. Yeah. Before you're freaking out, if you're hearing this story for the first time, and you're kind of freaking out, when we get to section 10, the Lord has a plan all along. So don't worry. The Lord knew what was going to happen, and what we have in the Book of Mormon is the portion that the Lord wanted us to have. So we're not out anything, but we just want to point out that this was a significant loss when Martin and Joseph lose this chunk of what they've translated. To give you an idea, Martin's the fifth scribe that works with Joseph, and Martin's brother Emer reports that uh, Martin scribed for about 200 pages. Now, the 
paper that Joseph was using was what's called foolscap paper, which was about 15 to 17 inches long. It's bigger than our typical eight and a half by 11 paper. And each one of these pages would have produced in the current printed edition about 1.2, 1.15 printed pages. So if Emer's correct, if to about 200 is correct, then this probably would have been about 230 pages. But that's just Martin's part. Martin wasn't the first scribe. One of my favorite books on this topic is by Don Bradley, and it's called The Lost 116 Pages. And what this historian does is he's scoured the documents. He's He's looked at all the evidence of the people that were firsthand witnesses that actually looked at and read this because what happened was Joseph gives it to Martin and Martin reads it to his family. And those individuals testified or shared their experiences of what was in the document. And so Emer, for example, says that it's much longer, but they also talk about some of the things that were in the lost manuscript. For example, the temple theology of the first Israelites, of Lehi's temple, that Lehi actually builds a tabernacle. And so when he gets the Liahona, it's actually at the foot, when it says the foot of the tent, perhaps that was a temple experience. And so you can read Don Bradley's book. It's filled with all these kinds of things that were in it, but he proposes that it probably was about 280 to 390 pages of text. That's quite a bit, but I do want to reiterate what Bryce said. And that is, the Lord was aware of this, and the small plates were a small abridgment. It was a document which covered that time period, which taught the theology of the Nephites, which covered it from a different point of view. It was the small plates. And so Mormon's account picks up in the reign of King Benjamin, but we don't have that first piece. If you want to get into the weeds a little bit as to, you know, how could it have been 300 pages? I suggest that you either read Don Bradley's book or just at least check out the show notes to reconstruct how Don Bradley looked at the documents of the people that were actually associated with reading the manuscript, particularly Martin's family. It was really important, this manuscript. I just want to share a couple more things that were in this manuscript. The idea that Lehi was making a new branch of Israel that Lehi was establishing an Israeli temple, that he was establishing their belief and continuing with the tradition of the first temple period. Don Bradley writes this. He says, there's an academic idea that during the Book of Mormon's coming forth, the restoration was very Christian, primitivist, focused selectively on the New Testament and restoring the primitive church like many movements around Joseph Smith at the time. When we look at the earliest part of the Book of Mormon, the first half of Mormon's abridgment that was lost, we do indeed find a restorationist program being enacted by Lehi and Nephi. But rather than trying to build the New Testament church, they were trying to rebuild Old Testament Israel. The contents of the lost pages thus entirely buck scholarly expectations that the Book of Mormon will behave as a New Testament-focused 19th century Christian primitivist text. What he's saying is the Book of Mormon, if you really look at it closely, and if you reconstruct some of the things in the early narrative that was lost, we see a Passover setting for Lehi's exodus. We see Lehi with a tabernacle. There's literally an ark. The concept of the Ark of the Covenant in Israel was reconstructed from the perspective of the Book of Mormon peoples. They had an ark and they had records and they had the equivalent of the things in the Israelite Ark. And so as you go through this and you look at some of this evidence, it's fascinating. And so Martin, he has to reclaim his reputation. He's worried about how people feel about him back home. And so he goes to Joseph and says, let me take the manuscript. Let me show them the evidence. And twice the Lord says no, and then he allows it. Bryce, why do you think he allows it? What are your thoughts on that? I think the Lord is setting them up for the lesson. There's no, there's no doubt in my mind that the Lord is setting Joseph and Martin up and all of us for the lesson that they're going to learn. But I think there's also a point in that, you know, God is going to answer your prayer. Uh, Jacob chapter four talks about the Jake, you know, the, the Israelites, the Jews 
received things they shouldn't have because they kept asking. There comes a point where we have to learn to say, okay, Lord, I accept. I think one of the lessons is I accept, Lord, I accept. If we keep pushing and we keep pushing and we won't accept the Lord's will, the Lord says, I'll answer your prayer. I'll do what you're asking me to do but it's going to harm you. And so I think there's a little bit of that and a little bit of, let me teach you the lesson that you're going to learn when you lose these. So he's told to only take them to five members of his family. We know that he takes it home. We know that he shows it to his family members and he locks it in the bureau of his parlor. But then during the period when he has it, he goes away on a trip. And when he comes back, it's gone. We don't know who took it, and I think typically Lucy gets, she gets kind of the blame for the, the manuscript being taken, but she denied it. There's a whole list of suspects that historians have looked at as to possibly who did it. And so if you want to go down those dirt roads and see that, you can go check out the show notes. We footnote the stuff and you can go and look for yourself and see some of those. But in essence, we don't know who took it. But the Lord in section 10 is going to explain what their motives were. And we haven't even touched on this, Bryce. During this time period, when he takes the manuscript in that summer of 1828, what else is going on in Joseph's life? The reason they moved to Harmony, Pennsylvania, is because Emma got pregnant, and she wanted to give birth back home near her family, near her mom, as we see so often in our own day. And so that's why they moved to Harmony, Pennsylvania. Emma gives birth right about this same time period— The child is not well, does not live long, and ends up dying. So Joseph stays behind in harmony, and weeks go by. And this is the setting. Joseph is about to lose the manuscript of the scriptures at the same time he lost their oldest child. And Emma doesn't do well. He almost loses Emma in this. So that's the setting here. He's lost the manuscript. Can you imagine losing all of the scripture that you've just translated and having to face the prophets of the past, having to face the Lord? And then on top of that, you've lost your firstborn child and you almost lost your wife. That's the setting of section three. So as soon as Emma is starting to feel well enough, she insists that Joseph go to New York. She is concerned about the manuscript. So she sends him to New York. He gets home. It's early enough that they're going to have breakfast. They invite Martin Harris over for breakfast, and he doesn't come. Four hours go by, and Martin finally shows up, walking very slowly. He stops at the gate. He sits down. He pulls his hat over his head. He finally comes in. It's dead silent. No one wants to say anything. Martin picks up his utensils to eat and drops them and says, I have lost my soul. And now every fear in Joseph Smith's heart comes to the surface, and he cries out in absolute agony. All is lost. He's just at the very bottom. He's lost the manuscript. He insists that Martin go back and search. And Martin says, I've looked everywhere. I've torn up the mattresses. I've torn open pillows. It's not there. And Joseph Smith is terrified of going home and telling Emma this. He thinks this might end Emma's life. This might cause Emma's death. And how am I going to face the Lord? So he goes home. Now, when Martin took the manuscript, Moroni came and took the Urim and Thummim. And as soon as he goes home, after the loss of the manuscript, Moroni comes and takes the plates. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine that. Give me the plates. Joseph must have felt completely abandoned. Absolutely abandoned. And I think he felt that he, ju- he deserved it. Joseph must have been lower than he's ever been. Now, the Lord clearly needs to rebuke the prophet and teach him a great lesson. So now let's jump into the text, into section three, and hear the message. So this is the therefore what. Everything else is just a historical context so that you need to understand the story that Joseph has lost a very large chunk of Scripture that he's taken a lot of time to translate. He's lost his oldest son. He's nearly lost his wife. And the Lord is going to teach him two marvelous lessons. 
and with all my heart and soul, I hope you learn the first of them. Clearly, the Lord needed to rebuke an erring prophet. Clearly, Joseph needs to learn a lesson, and that is when God speaks, you obey. Joseph will later say, I made this my motto, when God speaks, do it. And he learned that from this lesson. And the Lord needed to rebuke Joseph. But watch what he does now. This is the God that we worship. This is why I love the Doctrine and Covenants, because it's the only place you get to see this insight into God and his character. Watch the Savior, who first had to push Joseph way far away. I mean, taking the gold plates away from him, first he pushes the prophet way far away, sits him in his room. I mean, he is sent to time out big time. And Joseph is humbled by it. He is repentant by it. Now watch what the Lord does. So he starts in section 3, verse 1. Joseph, the works and the designs and the purposes of God cannot be frustrated, neither can they come to naught. That's an eternal principle. Man cannot destroy the designs and the works of God. Verse 3, remember, remember that it is not the work of God that is frustrated, but the work of men. Now watch what the Savior does. And this is the beauty of the Doctrine and Covenants, is you get to see the Savior do things like this. So listen to verse 4 and tell me how far away is Joseph and the Savior from each other. Verse 4, for although a man may have many revelations and have power to do many mighty works, yet if he boasts in his own strength and sets at naught the counsels of God and follows after the dictates of his own will and carnal desires, he must fall and incur the vengeance of a just God. Now, clearly he's referring to Joseph Smith, right? There's no question who he's talking about. Although a man may have many revelations, it's clearly Joseph. But how does he refer to Joseph? As a man. Do you sense the distance between God and Joseph? A man, way over there. Now in verse 5, watch him pull him a little closer. He pulls Joseph in just a little bit. And now the pronouns change. He says, behold, you have been entrusted with these things. He's no longer him or he or his or a man. It's now you. Do you sense the distance shrink? He pulls Joseph in. You have been entrusted with these things, but how strict were your commandments? And remember also the promises which were made to you, that if you did not transgress them, how oft have you transgressed the commandments? All the way down through verse 8, you should have been faithful. Now, verse 9. He changes yet again. Joseph goes from a man to you. Now watch verse 9. Behold, thou art Joseph. Do you sense that? That is a very reverent title. It's a very sacred, reverent, intimate title. Thou art Joseph. And thou wast chosen to do the work. We might miss that on a first reading. Yeah. But there's something going on there. You just see the character of God here. Joseph went from a man to you to thou. And then verse 10, I think Joseph hears the sweetest words he could have heard at the time. God is merciful. Repent of that which you have done, which is contrary to the commandments. Thou art still chosen, and art again called to the work. Boy, that that isn't an insight into the God that we worship, and the kindness and the character of Christ. I would imagine that losing a chunk of scriptures weighs pretty heavily on the not-do list. I mean, think about it. How many times was Joseph not allowed to get the plates because he didn't do what he was told? Losing a chunk of Scripture has got to be pretty significant, and yet the Lord just pulls him right into his heart and says, Joseph, you get a second chance. With all my soul, I testify that God is a God of second chances. 
of do-overs, of learn your lesson, stand back up, dust yourself off, and try it again. And the Doctrine and Covenants is going to show that so beautifully this year, the God of second chances and do-overs. You are never out of His reach, but if you'll allow Him, He will pull you in just like He pulled Joseph in. God can take ashes, this Isaiah 61, God can take ashes and He can turn it into beauty. And we see this in so many places in the Old Testament where these tragic circumstances where everything goes wrong and God fixes it. And so as, as sad as I am, and I, I, I do kind of lament the great corpus of material that was lost, and I don't really refer to it as the 116 pages, I refer to it as the lost manuscript, the temple theology of the Lehite nation, 450 years of history, I can't wait to read it. And as much as I ache about its loss, and I'm sure Joseph did much more than I ever will, I see this whole section is filled with hope because I mess up. I've done wrong. I've made ashes. How many times symbolically have we lost the manuscript? Yeah. And we've come back to the Lord and just absolutely, I can't believe I did that. And for a time, the Lord pushes us out and sits us in a corner, in a dark corner while we learn our lesson. And then just like Joseph, he just pulls us right back into his bosom and says, try it again, stand up, dust yourself off. It's like the Lord says about Oliver Granger in section 117, when he fails, not if, when he fails, he shall rise again, for his sacrifice shall be more sacred than his increase. It's not so much what we accomplish. It's not so much what we lost compared to what we put back. It's not your increase. It's that lesson learned. So get up, dust yourself off, apologize for losing the manuscript, learn the lesson, and then move forward. That's the God that we worship. And that's section three. And I just love section three. Now, there's one more message we've got to cover. God teaches Joseph the lesson. Now, remember, here's the circumstance. We talked about finding yourself in a circumstance like the Doctrine and Covenants. Joseph Smith is in a circumstance where he wants to make someone else, some human being, happy. He wants to please someone else at the expense of doing what he thinks is right. Now, how many times are you in that same circumstance? How many times have you been caught up at pleasing someone else at the expense of doing something right. I should do this, but I really want to do that because it's going to make Martin happy. Do you see that circumstance? Now, Joseph falls. And in the rebuke, here's the lesson. Verse 8, section 3, verse 8. The Lord says, you should have been faithful. And he would have extended his arm and supported you against all the fiery darts of the adversary, and he would have been with you in every time of trouble. In other words, I know why you were trying to make Martin happy, because he has money and you've got to publish this book. But if Martin had gotten mad and left, if Martin had abandoned you because of this, because you won't give him the manuscript, what's implied in verse 8? the Lord would have provided someone else. And so the point is, for all of us who are tempted to please men, to please other beings at the expense of doing something right, doing what we know we should be doing, the Lord says, no, you stick with God. You do the right thing. And if men get upset, I will provide something else. Let me give you a couple applications. I think I mentioned this one time in our podcast that I once taught a student who got a full-ride football scholarship to Dartmouth College. Can you imagine the gift that that was? Because an education from Dartmouth College is worth so much money. And he doesn't even have to pay. The, The limiting factor at getting that degree is the cost of the degree, which he doesn't have to pay because he just has to play football. If he plays football, they pay for his degree. It's a beautiful little thing. But then he turned 19 at the time and knew he should have served a mission. And now he's in Joseph Smith's circumstance. Do I please men? Do I stay at Dartmouth and play football 
because if I don't, they may take my scholarship away. Do I please man or do I do what I know is right? Do you see he's in the same circumstance? And that's the main lesson from this loss. That's the main principle that we need to take. You do the right thing. And if men get upset and take away the blessings they were offering you, God will provide another way. My student went on his mission and they held his scholarship. And it all worked out. But I believe with all my soul that if they had been upset about his mission and pulled his scholarship, the Lord would have provided something else. Richard G. Scott went through that same thing when he was called as a mission president. And he was over, he was participating in a very top secret um, a nuclear submarine pro- program. Nucle- nuclear yeah. submarine program. And he was told that if he leaves and goes on this mission, he would be considered a traitor to his country. Admiral Rickover literally said to him, because they were in Idaho, and he said, if you go, I'll never hire another Mormon, and you're going to be finished in the nuclear program. Do I please man? Do I please my boss? Do I please the U.S. military? Or do I do what I know is right and go on a mission? He was in Joseph Smith's exact same circumstance. And it wasn't just him. It was like all the Latter-day Saints that wanted to work. Can you imagine the weight of that? Pressure. But Richard G. Scott did the right thing. He went on a mission, and everything worked out. And that admiral ended up working for Richard G. Scott. But again, my testimony is, had that turned adversely against Elder Scott, the Lord would have provided another opportunity. That's the doctrine. If someone is pressuring you to do something that you know is not right, and you're tempted to please them, remember that you're in Joseph Smith's circumstance. And the lesson learned was, you should have been faithful, and God would have supported you against all the fiery darts. I think we're in that kind of circumstance today especially with social media and standing up for what's right. Right. And and we've got to stand up for what's right. And we don't want to be mean about it, but I think we shouldn't water it down. And so I love that quote by Elder McConkie where he says, the caravan's going to move and the dogs are going to bark. I love where he says, what does it matter if a few barking dogs snap at the heels of the weary travelers, meaning the caravan of the church, or that predators claim those few who fall by the way, the caravan moves on. And he just says, you know, there's going to be storms and floods and those kinds of things, but the caravan's going to move on. And the reason why is because he says, ahead is the celestial city, the eternal Zion, where all who maintain their position in the caravan will find food and drink and rest. The caravan moves on. And so, you know, we're not necessarily in the exact circumstance of Joseph, but I think what Bryce is illustrating is we can take section three and we certainly can see it applied in Elder Scott's life or in a football player's life or in your life. There's always going to be that pressure, isn't there? Yeah. I wonder, see, Pilate was in that circumstance. Do I please the Jews or I do what I know is the right thing? Because this man, Jesus, is innocent. And he cared more about what people thought. And I think the principle is, if you do the right thing, the Lord's going to be with you. He will. Sub- the promise is section 3, verse 8. He will support you against all the fiery darts of the adversary. He, would be, he will be with you in every time of trouble. Always do the right thing. And if the world gets angry at you for doing it, the Lord will be with you and will provide some other opportunity. Yeah, verse 16, my work shall go forth. There it is. So there's section three, the background, the circumstances, and there's the great lessons from section three. Let's move on to section four. Now, early in 1829, Joseph's parents go down a few times and visit him. We don't have a whole lot of background here, but in early 1829, Joseph's dad, at least, was his mom with him? I think it was just his dad. Yeah, so I've got his father comes down. And I don't think it was his mom. His father is there, and his dad, this is Joseph Smith Sr., is wondering what's his responsibility regarding the restoration. What role does Joseph Smith Sr. play in the restoration? Now, Joseph Smith has humbled himself. He ha- he responded to the loss of the manuscripts very significantly. And the plates were restored, the Urim and Thummim was restored. A couple months after the loss of the manuscript, his parents come down, and Joseph is happy, and, and things are better. He's, he's had section three. 
um, revealed. He knows that he's called again, and so things have been are better. So now we're early February 1829. He has the Urim and His father is curious, what's my role in the restoration? And that's the setting for what we call this marvelous section four. And, and most missionaries know section four. They quote it verbatim constantly. It's not just for missionaries. It's for anyone who is involved in the Lord's work. This is the invitation and the promise to join his work. And it starts with an interesting phrase that we're going to see repeated. A marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. That gets repeated in section 6 to Oliver Cowdery. It gets repeated in section 11 and section 12. And then all of a sudden it disappears. Section 14 is the last time the Lord says a marvelous work is about to come forth. He doesn't say that again. So he says it repeatedly, 4, 6, 11, 12, 14, and then he stops saying it. So why does he stop saying it? Because in June of 1829, the marvelous work had come forth. The manuscript had been produced. The translation of the Book of Mormon was complete. Now, the printing wasn't. They still have to do all of that, the printer's manuscript, and take it to the printer. It's not published, but it has come forth out of obscurity, and it's now available in English. So that's a significant phrase where the Lord keeps saying, a marvelous work is about to come forth. The one thing I want to point out about section four, and I just, I love this. I, I have so many failures, and I don't know that I can do anything in the Lord's kingdom. How in the world could I possibly do anything in the Lord's kingdom? And the Lord says, look, there's only one thing you really have to bring to the Lord. One thing calls you to the work. It's not your ability. It's not your financial situation. All of those things can be fixed. The one thing we have to bring is a desire to serve. So the Lord says in verse 3, if you have desires to serve God, you are called. That's the one thing the Lord can't fix. Your financial situation, He can fix. Your spiritual situation, your morality, your worthiness, all of those things, your physical limitations, He can fix. The one thing that becomes the biggest limitation to how successful you become in the Lord's work is your attitude. Because he can't change your heart. You have to change it. He can't. He cannot change our heart. You got to have the desires. Now, 57-year-old Joseph Smith Sr. comes in February, and, and we don't really think about this, though. September, Joseph gets the plates back. But he spends all that winter from September of 1828 to February of 1829 working, working around the farm. I think a big part of this revelation, too, is the Lord telling him, Joseph, this work's going to, it's going to happen. Even though you've had this experience and it's kind of given to Joseph Smith Sr. through Joseph Smith's mouth as a, a patriarchal blessing kind of situation. Yeah. Going back to that idea of having desires, Neil A. Maxwell, it was one of my favorite quotes from Neil A. Maxwell, he said, God does not begin by asking us about our ability, only about our availability, and if we prove our dependability, he will increase our capability. And that's the idea, is, I mean, Joseph was an unlearned man. Charles Anthon says, I can't read a sealed book. And Joseph says, well, I don't know if I can do it because I'm unlearned. But the Lord doesn't ask about your ability. He asks about your availability and if you prove your dependability. And then the Lord can take care of your capability. Now, another thing about section four is you need to understand that if you work in God's field, you get God's pay. So he says in verse 4, the field is wide already to harvest, and lo, he that thrusteth in his sickle, the laborer, with his might, the same layeth up in store, that he perish not, but bringeth salvation to his soul. Laboring in God's field gets God's pay, and God's pay is that you lay up in store, that you perish not, that you bring salvation 
to your soul. If you want to cross-reference, go to section 31. There's so many of these, but section 31, uh, Thomas B. Marsh is called as a missionary. And again, verse 3, the circumstance is the hour of your mission is come. Verse 5, thrust in your sickle with all your soul, and your sins are forgiven you. Section 50. It's just all over, right, Mike? Yeah, section 50, verse 36. Blessed are you who are now hearing these words of mine from the mouth of my servant, for your sins are forgiven you. Section 62, same thing, The right? testimony that you have borne has been recorded in heaven, and the angels rejoice yeah. over you, and your sins are forgiven you. I like to call these justification events. What I mean by that is when we approach the throne of grace... God cleanses us, whether it's in prayer or as we witness of Him, as we go and, and partake in hearing the things of salvation or ordinances of salvation, we're approaching holiness, and everything God touches, according to Elder Hunter, is healed. Yeah. Jesus said to His disciples regarding that whole episode with the Samaritan woman at the well, He that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto eternal life. And I think that's the gist of section four, is if you will, if you have desires to serve, if you, if you have the right attitude, and you serve him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, you will stand blameless before God. You, the missionary, the primary teacher, whatever position is, God is offering us his pay if we do his work. To put this into a historical context, if you look at verse 4, where he's told to thrust in his, his sickle with his might, Joseph Smith Sr. goes home, and in that springtime, he meets a guy by the name of Oliver Cowdery. And we don't have the whole account, but during that time period, he testifies to Oliver Cowdery that his son, far away, has been uh, you know, is working on the translation of the Book of Mormon. He's been called as a prophet. And it's Oliver's interaction with Joseph Smith Sr., where he starts having the spirit work upon him. And Oliver Cowdery actually makes the trip all the way to Harmony, Pennsylvania, to meet Joseph, based a lot of it on Joseph Smith Sr.'s testimony. Now, to kind of look at it from another angle, Joseph Smith Sr. was kind of poor. He struggled. It was at this time period... Um, it was actually in October of 1830, so it's going to be the next year, but he he applies this in this circumstance. He couldn't pay a $14 debt. He just was not able to pay it. And the holder of the note was a Quaker who hoped that he could get Joseph Smith Sr. to renounce his testimony of the Book of Mormon at the promise of being set free. And Joseph Smith Sr. didn't do it. He had to go and work in the jail cooper shop to earn money to pay off the debt. And when Joseph Smith Sr. was in the jail's uh, cooper shop, he preached every Sunday that he was in jail. And after he was released from custody, he actually baptized two, two people who were incarcerated with him and whose hearts had been pricked by this message. So even in this horrible circumstance of your father goes to jail because he couldn't pay a debt, and the guy basically says, hey, renounce your testimony, I'll rip up the note. And he's like, nope, I'm going to go to jail. In this horrible circumstance, Joseph Smith Sr. applies that, and he, and he bears witness of the restoration. So little historical tidbits, are like those kinds of things, are happening all over the place. And you can really see Joseph Smith Sr. trying to apply what we're talking about. Yep. Verse 6 gives us the qualities we need to possess if we're going to work for the Lord. We need to have faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, godliness, charity, humility, and diligence, a great list of attributes that we need to aspire to. And then section 4 ends with the most repeated request from the Lord. He is begging us, ask, and you'll receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Count how many times in these early sections the Lord says, ask, seek, knock, desire. Sometimes even in one section, section 11 to Hiram Smith, he will repeat that word, if you have desires, if you have desires, if you have desires. Let that theme flow throughout these early sections. The Lord is saying, ask, seek, knock, desire, and I will respond. He is, he was, he is begging to fill whatever vessel we bring to him. So bring the biggest one you possibly can. Good section.
So five, to me, five is, it's almost a continuation of some of the stuff in ether, right? Where in the book of ether, we read about the witnesses and they're going to testify of what's been seen. And historically, Joseph was stoked when other witnesses saw the plates because he wasn't alone. So section five is March 1829. So it's been a year since the loss of the manuscript. And so we go back to that whole episode with Martin Harris and his wife. So Lucy Harris actually goes to court and files a complaint against Joseph Smith for deceiving her husband. And so Martin Harris comes to Harmony seeking something that he can take back to court, something that he can prove that Joseph hasn't defrauded him. He knows that Martin is going to be asked to testify. He knows that he's going to have to go to court and testify. And if he doesn't, then he's going to be accused of fraud as well. So Martin comes to Joseph in March of 29, begging and pleading for some type of evidence. Can I please have something to prove that you're not a fraud, that I'm not a fraud, that I haven't been defrauded? So that's kind of the background of Section 5 is Lucy Harris's lawsuit. And Martin is looking for evidence. So read that, know that as you go through Section 5, and the Lord says, oh, okay, I'll give you evidence and I'll give you witnesses, but not the ones you're looking for. Martin is looking for some type of, can I prove that this is legit? Can I have the plates? Can I have, and I'm not taking the manuscript because that ended disastrously, but Martin is looking for some type of evidence. By the way, I think we're asked this all the time. People say, well, what evidence do you have that the Book of Mormon's true? Yes. And there are all kinds of evidences as far as the text and it being old and those kinds of things and scholarship. But at the end of the day, the main evidence, I think one of the main things we're going to get out of section five, Bryce, is verse seven. Yes. Yeah. And I just love that because Martin is asking for some type of physical evidence that I can take back and take and testify in court. Now, do you see the circumstance? Martin is being pressured by the world to prove his faith is true. And that's the circumstance. And the Lord's going to say, here's some truths you need to know when the world is trying to pressure you to prove your faith. And the Lord says in verse 7, Mike, what does he say? Behold, if they will not believe my words, they would not believe you, my servant Joseph. If it were possible that you should show them all these things which I have committed unto you. So even if you produce the plate text in the Smithsonian and show the world, if they're not going to believe the words of the Book of Mormon, then they're not going to believe that. And I remember as a young man reading that going, I don't get that because like the, the proof is in the text. And yet, if you look at how people approach ancient documents today— and in critical scholarship, when I say critical, I don't mean necessarily critical of what it's saying, but critical as in uh, where it comes from, the provenance, and the hypotheses as to you know how it was created. I certainly could see this today, that if the text was produced, the actual play text in the Smithsonian, I guarantee there would be people who say, oh, that doesn't say that, or that doesn't say this. And it would not increase membership in the church. It would not increase faith. Which is kind of a challenge, right? In essence, the Lord essentially saying, I'm giving you the words of the Book of Mormon. If you're honest in heart and you'll read it and let the Spirit come into your life. In other words, are you going to trust scholars or are you going to trust the voice of the Lord? Now, I'm a huge fan of scholarship. I love geeking out on stuff, but all of Heavenly Father's children can learn to listen to the voice of the Spirit. And I think that's the language of heaven. And I think that's what he wants us to get out of verse 7. Yep. Now, he does promise that there will be witnesses. There will come three witnesses that will see the plates. And the role of the three witnesses is significant in church history. All three of them leave the church. All three of them become disenfranchised with Joseph Smith. And had this been a fraud, had this been a conspiracy to defraud people, wouldn't they all have come clean at that moment? But all three of them, to their dying breath, 
remain true and faithful to their witness of the gold plates, and they testify of the Book of Mormon. And so that promise is coming, and that's going to be a huge chunk to Joseph Smith to know that three other people, and then again, eight more beyond that, will actually have seen the plates and can testify that they are true. We went and actually collected their dying witnesses of Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, and David Whitmer. Because when they died or right thereabouts, like the day before, they testified that they saw the angel, that they saw the plates. And so you can read those in the show notes. I think sometimes our enemies like to say things like, well, the witnesses recanted. And I always like to say, okay, let's go to the documents. Let's go and read what they said. That's important. Yep. So that's kind of the setting of sections five for all of us, that your greatest evidence of the truthfulness of this work is the work. It's the words. The greatest evidence that the Book of Mormon is true is to read the Book of Mormon. Read it, listen to the Spirit, and you will have a witness that it is true. Now, one thing he does say to Martin, if you'll go to verse 24 and 25, this whole section is to Joseph, and then he addresses Martin himself. He says, now, let me talk about that man who has the desire to witness. Verse 24, he says, if he exalts himself and does not humble himself before me, he won't. But if he will bow down before me and humble himself in mighty prayer and faith and the sincerity of his heart, then will I grant unto him a view of the things which he desires to see. Now, notice the very next phrase. And there's a great principle of revelation here. If you want a witness from God, you need to be prepared to share it. Verse 25, then he shall say unto the people of this generation, I will let him see, I will give him a view of the plates if he is willing to testify. That's an important principle. That is a very important principle. God says to all of us, I will give you a witness. I will confirm your faith Will you be willing to testify of it to the world? Will you tell others and testify? And you're going to see that again and again and again. Go to section 17, where he's instructing the three witnesses. This is where they actually, the three witnesses view the plate. So section 17 is the preparation of that. Notice verse 2, by your faith you will obtain a view of them. Now verse 3, after that. After that you have obtained faith and have seen them with your eyes, you shall testify of them. And that's the principle. God will give you a witness, but he asks that you then share your testimony of that witness to the world. That's one of the reasons I think we have testimony meeting every month is the Lord wants us to stand up before the world and say, I testify that what I have seen, what I know, what has come into my heart is true. And so you just see that pattern. I'm going to show you, Martin, but then I need you to testify of what you've seen. And that's it. Martin had a tendency to embellish and to drone on. And so the Lord says, say no more. You just stop right there. Testify that it's true. So... Not having any evidence, Martin goes back to New York. He is called upon to testify in court, and he bears a very powerful and yet simple testimony of the gold plates and Joseph Smith. The judge finds no evidence of fraud and drops the case. And I just think that's a significant thing that Martin Harris said, look, I'm just going to go back and testify that I know it's true. I think that uh, that's part of what Moroni says. If we ask with a sincere heart, I think the sincere heart part is, why do you want to know? Or is it just like an intellectual curiosity? Or, or are what, you going to do something you know, about it? What are you going to do? Because I think the Lord's like, no, I want to tell you, but I want to enlist you in my work. And if you just have like this passing intellectual curiosity, you just want to argue for the sake of arguing, this isn't like a magic trick. This isn't like a sideshow, right? Yeah, this is a commitment. So a couple more things in section five that are just kind of interesting. We've talked a lot about the imagery of the apostasy. Revelation chapter 12 talks about the woman going into the wilderness. And that's kind of the imagery of the apostasy, that the church went into the wilderness during the apostasy. So section five, verse 14, he gives us this whole imagery. Um, he, He says, in this, this beginning of the rising up and the coming forth of my church... 
out of the wilderness, clear as the moon, fair as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. That, that's just kind of a play on all that imagery we've been talking about, about the church coming out of the wilderness. And you can see what it's fighting in verse 19. In, in Revelation 12, it's a dragon, but in section 5, it's a... Desolating scourge. It's kind of, you know what that reminds me of is section 1, where the Lord says, there's this calamity coming, this is why I'm doing this. And so he says, you know, this desolating scourge is going to be poured out from time to time if they don't repent. And then he says, I'm going to give them time, right? But eventually, and you mentioned this when we talked about section one, the end of verse 19, if we're not living that law, then we'll be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. And that's a prophecy that's throughout the New Testament narrative, and it's continued on in the Doctrine and Covenants. To me, Bryce, what this says is, that this is a continuation, that the New Testament church is continuing in this dispensation. Right. One thing I wanted to mention is this is symbolic. The church is coming out of the wilderness and into the light. Therefore, each one of us individually have to come out of the darkness and into the light. And so the yeah, Lord... it's not said, just it's the church, it's yeah, us. Yeah, it's all of us. You know, I have to get out of Babylon. It's that whole imagery of get out of Babylon and leave the things of Babylon behind. I can't think Babylonian thoughts. I can't say Babylon words. I can't have Babylon attitudes. I have to come out of darkness. And if I do that, notice verse 21, I have to yield to the persuasions of men no more. You've got to come out of the darkness and into the light. Be firm in keeping the commandments, and if you do that, I will grant unto you eternal life. Joseph, in section 132, is promised eternal life because he has been faithful. His tears have been noticed, that his heart is right, and so the Lord's going to fulfill that promise and just come out of the darkness into the light. Do you see that as a foreshadowing there? I, uh, certainly. I grant, and you, the Lord would not bring it up unless it was significant. I, if you do the things that I have commanded you, I grant unto you eternal life, even if you should be slain. Tell me that's not a foreshadowing. Joseph, you will have eternal life, but you are going to be See, see he told the Nephites that. You remember back in Third Nephi chapter 21, he says, the life of my servant will be in my hand, even though he will be marred by them, yet I will heal him. And so Joseph's life is very much, uh, yeah, bear testimony, be faithful, but it sure sounds like, Joseph, you're going to be slain in the end of this. I wonder what he thought at this time. Yeah. I know that at some point in his life, he got a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs and was reading that. One of the things that he got out of that was so many of God's children are exalted without ever having the fullness of the gospel. And some of those thoughts, I think, were a precursor to him getting revelation on work for the dead and those kinds of things. Joseph has a grand vision of God's plan, and he sees, like I, I'm, I'm stretching out my hands here, he sees the ends. The, the Lord's revealing this stuff to him, and and I think, he, I think that's why we get some of this stuff in the book of Revelation portrayed in section 5, is we see this over and over again, this cosmic view of, good versus evil, and Joseph, you've got a work to do. In his last winter, 43 going into 44, he gathers the Quorum of the Twelve and just hour after hour after hour of instruction and review, and he finally says, I have given you every key that I've received. I have taught you every principle that I've been taught. The kingdom now rests upon you. I am going to my rest. Yeah. And he just kind of sensed that his time was short and he had to get moving. And so I think there's a foreshadowing here. There's a stoppage here too at the end of the section. In verse 30, the Lord says, hey, stop. You're going to stop translating. Now, Joseph doesn't know this, but God does. The next month, or excuse me, the next few days in April, Oliver Cowdery shows up and he's going to be a huge piece you know, as a scribe for Joseph. And so in verse 30, the Lord's like, hey, you're going to stop. And then in section 6, April 1829, this is where Oliver's spoken to by the Lord. I can't walk away from section 5 without mentioning verse 10. The Lord says to Joseph Smith, this generation shall have my word through you. So let's be very clear. 
we believe in the God that has been revealed through Joseph Smith. The truth that we have today has come from Joseph Smith. This generation shall have my word through you. I love the Bible. You know Mike loves the Bible. But we're not fitting the restoration into the old texts of the Bible. We're fitting the texts of the Bible into the restoration. That matters. That matters. It is the foundation of the restoration that comes first. Our knowledge of God came through Joseph Smith and is confirmed by ancient covenants. I like and to tell people texts. we don't believe in baptism for the dead because there's one verse in 1 Corinthians 15, right? We believe in it because a seer has revealed it to us, yep. right? But we confirm our belief because it was mentioned in previous texts. And so I love that. This generation shall have my word through you. Joseph Smith is the instrument through which we know what we know. It's not a matter of we have a better understanding of history or we have texts from ancient history. It's that we have been given a do-over and that anything that ever happened in the past, we can fit into our restoration. We don't fit the restoration into the past. I think that's significant, and I testify of Joseph. I love that man with all my soul. Everything I know about God and his purposes for us have come through Joseph Smith. And for that, I am extremely grateful. And with that, we'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.